Good evening, world. This is the podcast, Ask the Fast, and your host, Ask Laura Cattell. Woo! Alright, so, for those just joining in, we are reviewing Mitarowitz's Miracle Club. We've discovered some interesting things about the author, some interesting things about the world at large, and some of the more bare-bones mechanics stripped away of all of the... Ooh, excuse me. Of all of the... Super sappy, sure you can do it, rah rah, sis boom blah type of stuff that type of well type of stuff and fluff uh, that you will find in most books out there. Um, currently, we have been going over the negative response. Um, how long this? Negative response ba- um, from a one Barbara Arnreich, who wrote a book called Bright Sided. Who writes a, which is basically an entire book uh, that is really a scathing critique of the positive thinking movement in its whole. And we've gone over the last few days, and I think we still have quite a bit to go. Let's see. Yeah. Alright, we got three more pages of this before we reach t- chapter 10. And so we're going to continue today. No, excuse me. Two more pages? No. Yeah, three. We're going to continue Mr. Horowitz's breakdown. I mean, we, we uh, yesterday we went over a couple of uh, rebuttals to Miss Arnreich. Um, one from Mr. Dooley, uh, not Mr. Dooley, Mr. Uh, Horowitz himself, and another from Paula Tiberius, North Hollywood, California, who has used a personal experience with it, and even a rebuttal from UC Berkeley researcher Jason Marsh who stated that Ehrenreich misstated his and his colleagues' research, who wrote then in own, his own essay, What Bar- Barbara Ehrenreich Gets Wrong About Gratitude. And it's really a snarky take. And honestly, from the type of background that the writer has, I'm not actually expecting anything less. For some reason, that particular side of the world, seemed, or particular side of the... Not world controversy? No. Culture? No. Other side of the table? We'll go with that. Um, tends to be very morose, depressed, demoralizing, like no hope for the future. Oh my god, the world is fucked up. What are we going to do? Look at all these problems, yada yada yada. And basically their position is they're accusing the positive mind movement of ignoring all the social issues in favor of imagining bright sunshine and fanciful, you know, positive, everything's great type stuff. And what they don't realize, and I went into this at length yesterday, is that it's not ignoring. It's not ignoring. It's in spite of. Yes, there's a small percentage of people that will probably take that as a, oh, sweet, I only have the positive think and everything will happen, everything will come to me and everything will be hunky-dory and golden. And that's not how it works, is it? No. Um, so, we're going to continue today with Mr. Uh, Horowitz's own more in-depth rebuttal, not just his letter to the editor that we went over yesterday. We're going to go into a more in-depth rebuttal because yesterday we got way too long, but it was necessary. It was necessary. Okay, so I'm not going to go back over all of that other stuff because, I mean, it's gotten plenty of play in the last couple of podcasts. So we're going to pick up today right after the... Um, the letter to the editor from Miss Paula Tiberius. Uh, we f- we finished off there yesterday. We're going to pick up directly after her letter to the editor ended on the next page 118 afterwards, continuing the topic of why the critics are wrong, which is the topic, or excuse me, the title for this chapter. And before I go any farther, my shout out to the restaurant industry, all of my... Guys and gals out there in Foodland, my goodness, it's getting rough. For 
Um, gosh. Alright, I, and this was just from an Uber Eats. I, I belong to so many random pages just so that I can keep abreast of what's going on. Uber Eats out of Puyallup, Washington today. Went up to the sign, took a picture of their drive through They didn't have anything. Nothing, practically. Ice cream machine was working, but everything else was gone. If anybody knows anything about McDonald's, that's the funny part. Um, supply lines. People not showing up for work. Um, you know, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, all this stuff is really contributing to a crisis of labor shortage. I just saw, or just read, I should say, an article detailing the latest polls and that 70% of total workers will quit on the spot if they were forced to take this vaccine in order to keep working. 70%! Now I do try and keep politics and uh, religious connotation out of this unless it's within respect and within proper context of uh, what the subject matter is producing is providing me with. I really, really try. Because again, and I've said it again and I'll say it again and I'll continue saying it. Politics and religion are two things you you just you have to take with a grain of salt with people because everybody has their different ideas of how everyone else should live based on their perspective of how life goes flat out and i'm going to go back to mr dooley's really awesome um example that he wrote in his infinite possibilities and that everyone has is wearing a different shade of sunglasses Everyone's got a slightly different shade than somebody else does. And that's why when you get into arguments regarding religion, philosophy, and or politics with people, it devolves into arguing and petty bickering. So I try and stay away from it as much as possible. But it's rough out there. Man, it's getting rough out there. I don't know where all of this is headed, but I'm I'm still... I gotta keep hope in a better tomorrow. Whenever that tomorrow ends up coming, I have got to hope that there's a better tomorrow coming. And so for all my uh, food restaurant, or food land and restaurant guys and gals out there, thank you for all you do, thank you for all you've done and are continuing to go through. And if you are feeling stressed, overwhelmed, and like you can't take it anymore, please, 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 don't do something you can't take back. Don't quit, okay? Don't, don't quit. Please don't quit. Okay. Oh, so. So, he left, he was, um, uh, Paul Tiberius's letter to the editor. Before that, Mr. Horowitz writes, um, that the critique from the UC Berkeley researcher, uh, falls second to the, to the letter to the editor that she writes because it comes from the very type of working person whom Aaron Reich strives to speak but barely seems to recognize that would be the average Joe, your regular person, the person for whom picks up these books, hoping to get a better grasp on life, a better mental state, a better path forward. And that's honestly, before I get even started, that's one of my hugest criticisms of Miss Ehrenreich and anybody throwing shade at the self-help movement. There are millions of people out there that are unhappy with their life. Who the hell are you to tell them that they aren't allowed to think different thoughts, hope for the future, or have gratitude for what they have? Because honestly, that's exactly what you're doing when you're throwing shade on their initiative to try and make themselves feel better despite the reality of what might be going on in their lives. I mean, that is freaking low and petty. That's right, I said it. It's petty. You're taking stabs at people who are at the lowest points in their lives, trying to get themselves 
internally better and you're seriously throwing shade at them? You're nothing but a bully trying to make yourself feel better. If you can't tell, it still gets me incensed. Okay, so continuing from that, he continues, Aaron Reich's critique of positive thinking in Brightsided rests on the notion that positive mind therapeutics harmfully encourage people to see what they want to, rather than to deal with, challenge, and improve the world as it is. But when paddling into the waters of positive mind philosophy, she imitates the same intellectual blindness that she aims to pillory. It is, frankly, difficult to tell whether this stems from laziness of research or a willful neglect of facts for the sake of scoring a witty point. In Brightsided, not one note is made of the long-time radical and progressive history of the positive thinking movement. As alluded to earlier, positive mind philosophy was interwoven with the reformist ideals of the progressive era. Its early explorers and acolytes included feminist pioneer Elizabeth Cady Stanton, New Deal icon Henry Wallace, and black nationalist Marcus Garvey. Um, there's a asterisk by Master Gar Marcus Garvey's name. At the bottom of the page, it, it uh, says, See the Hidden History of New Thought by Harvey Bishop, Science of Mind, September 2015. In case you were interested. Of course, there are of course, there are also examples to the contrary, and she finds them. But to omit the progressive aspect of positive thinking is akin to omitting the history of civil rights and labor, to me, the civil rights and labor organizing when writing the history of the Democratic Party. Again, I'm not, I, I don't get into politics. I'm not Democrat, I'm not Republican, I'm independent. I don't have any party allegiance whatsoever. I'm rather disgusted with the entire thing right now, personally. Um, but that's because I understand human psychology and dynamic maybe a bit more than the average person. You're not going to get anywhere by consistently and continuously just telling everybody what they're doing wrong. And then subsequently, well, you're doing that wrong, so I think you're evil. If no one's bothering to come at anything from a place of understanding, we're never going to get anywhere. Everyone is allowed to have their different perspectives. And the minute you try and criticize, not criticize, condone their perspective because it doesn't align with yours, you are inviting that person to condone yours because they refuse to understand where you're coming from. It goes both ways. And unfortunately, that's where we've gotten to this tit-for-tat that we are in politics. So like I said, I don't agree with it, any of it, at all. I'm not one side or the other. Make me a case that will impact beneficially the most people in the shortest amount of time with the most efficiency. That's what I'm looking for here. Hold on. Okay. So I'm going to continue with this next paragraph, and then I have something else that I want to include that's really vital to the rebuttal that... Um, is necessary to Miss Arnreich's really um, disgusting alliteration in her book. So I'm going to continue real quick. This historical shallowness is further seen in how she deals with the fundamental influence of Ralph Waldo Emerson on the popular American psyche and on the positive thinking movement in particular. Almost all of her quotes from Emerson are referenced to secondary sources primarily Catherine Albanese's 2007 scholarly and magisterial study of transcendental religions in America, called A Republic of Mind and Spirit. If a freshman quoted Emerson from secondary sources in a term paper, I'd have questions for that student. But how can the leading critic of positive mind mechanics evidently not have read and yellow highlighted essays by the very philosopher who made the movement possible to begin with? And I'm going to add to this one more really mm, stick in her side, so it will. Alright, I don't know if anybody really knows how Think and Grow Rich came about. Napoleon Hill's seminal work, Think and Grow Rich, written way before the 20th century and all the, the computers and whatnot that we have access to today. Okay. 
Dale Carnegie invited Napoleon Hill into his office. And he posed him with a question. And he was, it was a trick question. He was waiting to see how Hill would respond. And the question was, would you devote 20 years of your life to something you would not be paid for? Hill's response was yes, and in under 30 seconds. I forget the actual, it's, that's very close to it, I forget what the actual sentence was. But basically Carnegie invited him on an experiment. He then gave Napoleon Hill a statement that he was supposed to recite to himself every single day, every single morning thereafter. Okay, if you've never read Think and Grow Rich Yourself, you really should. Okay, 20 years, Napoleon Hill went and interviewed and observed and tracked and followed all of the captains of industry, all the big guys of the time. Think and Grow Rich was his observations. Those were his conclusions. Absent politics... Okay, he went and followed these guys who were real rags to riches stories. They came over from Europe with absolutely, no, almost absolutely nothing. Okay, came over here and made fortunes that changed the entire course of human history. That is where Think and Grow Rich comes from. And considering how Think and Grow Rich is such a cornerstone piece of the entire New Thought movement, that she wouldn't include that in there speaks more volumes about her trying to get click points from her already disinterested pack of followers rather than providing accurate dissemination of existing material. Okay? Think and Grow Rich wasn't inspired by anything other than Napoleon Hill's 20 years of careful observation and research of these guys that had made it on their own. And that is his conclusions based on that research. Alright, so continuing. In her Times piece, Aaron Reich dusted off criticism of the mega-selling book and movie The Secret, a work now ten years old, to claim that its excesses have wholly exposed the silliness of positive thinking. I have criticized this secret in blunt terms in One Simple Idea and elsewhere. But more importantly than that popular work, we are, as noted, living through a period of new findings in placebo research, ranging from placebo surgeries to myriad studies linking positive expectancy to a strengthened immunolo immunological response. <laughs> Normally I'm much better than that. Hold on a second. Oh, goodness. A strengthened immunological response. There we go. As well as widely accepted findings in the nascent field of neuroplasticity, in which redirected thoughts are seen to alter brain biology. Not just your perspectives, not just your beliefs, your actual biology, the cells that make up your brain. It affects your actual biology. These developments in mental therapeutics are deepening our questions about the potentialities of the mind. Given that such things are reported in media Reich presumably encounters, from the New York Times to NPR, as well as in medical journals, it is intellectually lame to fall back on berating the secret. Also, it's, no, I'm going to agree with that. That's lame. Like, if that's what you're going to go back to with all the- with basically a decade of research in between. A lot of which corroborates what was said in The Secret. I mean, that's just... I'm gonna put it this way. Don't go to someone who only sees problems instead of solutions. If she sees The Secret as a problem, she has a really preferred or offered any realistic or reasonable solutions. 
and I would invite Miss Arnreich to go and interview. Maybe she should have a babysitter there with her so she doesn't, you know, piss them off or, you know, be rude or anything. To go and interview the people for whom this has been beyond beneficial. People who literally sit there and use this to make their lives better. I dare her to go and interview those people. And then actually, legitimately, report on what she finds. Back to the book. She also blames positive thinking for the 2008 financial crash. A point of view popularized in a December 2009 cover story in The Atlantic by journalist Hannah Rosen. I disagree with Rosen's challenging conclusion that pro prosperity ministries inspired a boundless faith in our shaky economy and triggered the crash. I think Rosen gives too much credit to the influence of prosperity ministers and lays insufficient blame on coercive lending tactics. Yet seriously? No, it can't ever be anything to do with the, you know, banks trying to scam people over because they thought they were too big to fail. Ended up being that that was the case. Um, Alright, the banks thought people were, you know, gullible. They started writing subprime loans. That's what created the first bubble. And then because people then couldn't have homes, everything else went to shit, which created the rest of the bubble, and it all burst. Alright. Banks that were caught writing those subprime loans went under. And what did we do? The government just bailed out the banks. We got peanuts. Kind of like what's happening now. Alright. It has nothing to do with that. Alright, because when you're going into a bank and you're talking to a lending officer or a mortgage officer and they're telling you, oh yeah, sure, you can absolutely do this. Are you really going to go back home and do extra more research when the loan officer just told you, yeah, sure, you can get into that $680,000 home on your $13 an hour salary. You have no idea how it happens. You're just overjoyed that you can get into a house. You have no idea why. That is really disingenuous and disgusting uh, alliteration right there. Seriously? You're going to blame positive thought for the 2008 financial crash? That is fucking scapegoating if I've ever heard it. Wow. No, no, because, you know, robber barons and business types and tycoons that only worry about money, yeah, they sure, they, they absolutely have just all your best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Seriously. But, nonetheless, Rosen performed extraordinarily repertorial legwork and research, exploring the lives of day-to-day -day people, a lot like the North Hollywood correspondent above, who staked part of their financial well-being, for good or ill, on the validity of positive thinking and affirmative prayer. By contrast, Arnreich took the easy road. She visited megachurches, such as Joel Austin's in Texas, and did her best to paint a depressing, hopper-esque canvas of lost American dreamers pinning their hopes on positivity ministers like Austin, whose height and appearance she derided. What she omitted was any measured critique of what Austin actually says. Not the message that he puts forth, just the person. When you can, can't attack the message, you have to attack the person, and that's the, I believe that's the straw man? Fallacy? Like, seriously? You're gonna go with that? After the 2008 crash, Austin, speaking from his televised Sunday morning pulpit, addressed the question of what someone should do if he or she fears being laid off. He offers three pieces of advice. One, constantly learn new technology and skills. Two, take on additional tasks at work. And three, demonstrate a positive mental attitude at work. Yeah, that's pretty basic right there. Arnreich would probably roll her eyes at this kind of page-a-day calendar advice, noting that it does nothing for any serious person, right? Wrong. This is exactly the kind of advice that I would give to any member of my own family, while at the same time working to restore the kinds of banking regulations, unionization, and transparency in lending that have protected us from this kind of disastrous crash following the Great Depression. I'm going to 
go a little bit off the rails here and that's prior to the 2008 crash, which you don't understand, is that a couple of banking laws have been repealed a couple of years prior. Banking laws that were there to protect people's money from banks that wanted to use what they saw as all that liquidity, basically all that money, sitting in their banks that they couldn't touch because it was somebody else's. They changed the banking laws so they could touch that money. Which is unfortunately exactly what happened in the Great Depression. Um, banks were only required to keep so much on hand. And when a run on the banks ensued because they didn't have enough money to pay everybody, banks went bankrupt. They changed the banking laws a couple of years prior. That's how they were able to write those subprime mortgages because they had everyone else's liquidity on their bankrolls. So they could go ahead and tell the feds, yeah, sure, see, we've got more than enough money to cover it in case something happens. And it bit them in the ass. Because it was fake. It's all fake. It's all numbers and ones and zeros on a computer somewhere. So... That being said, where'd I go? Alright, continuing. Aaron Reich seems to believe that practical advice and political reform are at odds. And that is simply ridiculous. Practicality and protest go hand in hand. The revolution does not solve my problems next Thursday. For that, I need help that conforms to the boundaries we currently live in, while fighting to expand them. After all these years of the American left wandering in the wilderness, does this really require restating? You know, honestly, I'm going to say that that's actually not true. And if anybody's been watching current events going on, it's, um, I don't know where a lot of people get this idea. Maybe because they're just surrounded by it all the time. Being an independent, I've had a chance to see from both sides of the aisle. Honestly, the American left, as it's been put, has become much more radicalized, as far as I can see. Um, that particular point of view operates almost every single news, legacy news uh, station besides Fox, and even Fox's, uh, Oprah bought a 51% controlling stake in. Um, most academia, most liberal colleges, most post and um, primary schooling, Okay, most of Hollywood, most of the voices that you hear, that's their particular point of view. So I'm not quite sure where people get this whole wandering in the wilderness type of thing. They're not wandering anywhere. Back to the book. And as one of the Times correspondents pointed out, some of the most effective social reformers in American history have been happy warriors. Hopeful, dynamic people who related to ordinary Americans, or who were themselves ordinary Americans, and would, who would never dream of casually debasing popular religious or therapeutic ideas. This was true, for example, of R.N. Reich's Democratic Socialists of America co-chair co Michael Harrington, who died of cancer in 1989. Mike, as he was known to all, felt great affection for people, and evoked similar feelings in return. As one of my old comrades, Dinah Leventhal, recalled, he really loved this country, and thought that you had to love the country to be a radical, to be a socialist, and to want to change it. You cannot love a country in any authentic sense when you offhandedly disparage and make no effort to make and make no effort to take full measure of an outlook embraced by varied millions of Americans of all backgrounds and classes. Mike's biographer Maurice Isserman noted with trademark restraint that Ehrenreich did not get along with Michael. It is, it is the sole mention of her in Isserman's biography, The Other American. This was pretty common knowledge back in the day, and it may have revealed the sealing, seedlings of Ehrenreich's current jag against positive thinking. She is convinced, and tries to convince others, that the positive mind tradition and expressions of American optimism represent an inherently selfish 
capitalist-bolstering, mush-headed philosophy that serves to keep workers in their place. That's funny. I don't know of anybody in the Positive Mind movement that just literally says, yo, I just want to stay where I'm at and just give it to the man. Mm-hmm. Really? God, that makes me upset. No. It encourages people to hope beyond their current level. It encourages people to stretch beyond their current level, to strive for something eh, they maybe didn't believe that they were deserving of before, because now they believe, maybe I am deserving of it. And then they go for it. Alright, I will say this with absolute certainty. You cannot become something until you believe you deserve to become that something. From money, to power, to politics, to leadership positions, to running a country, to running a company, to running anything. If you don't believe you're worthy of that position, you're not going to get to that position. Because somebody else who's hungrier and more determined is going to get there before you. And they're going to see it. It takes being hungry. It takes being persuasive. It takes initiative. It takes motivation. It takes pivoting like nobody's business. Being able to multitask like crazy to hold those positions. I don't want to watch. I don't want to read that book at all now. Goodness gracious. She may need to see it that way. Such of you may affirm the oppositional tone and sense of outsider exclusivism. Exclusivism? Exclusivism. That, in effect, tell her who she is. That right there. Perfect. Beautiful. Wonderful. That's the crux of it in such the most beautifully simplistic sentence right there. She can't argue to the positive because in order to do that would mean she'd have to have been in the position that she has found her identity in. So she's going to double down on it. If you're not willing to change inwardly you're not going to see a change outwardly. Please, over anything else, all right, do not attach your identity to a feeling of lack, of oppressed, of victim, because you will constantly be drawing things into your life that will make you a victim. That will make you feel oppressed. That will make you feel negative if you attach your identity to those things. And there's another wonderful bit of research that she fails to mention in her book is that in the last decade or so, the research, hang on a second, the research into how we construct our identity, there are internal perspectives that drive what we call our identity has been the focus of quite a bit of research, quite a bit of experimentation, and is one of the new frontrunners of the positive thought movement, is to change the identity you are inside. Basically, create an avatar of the you that you want to be. Right? How do they approach situations? How do they deal with criticisms? How do they, you know, walk into a boardroom? What kind of confidence do they have? What kind of clothes are they wearing? What kind of stance? Is the Superman stance, you know, with the hands on the hips and your head back high and chest out? Right? What is your identity? And the general conversation now is that you can't really get to a new place of being until you craft an identity capable of handling all of those new responsibilities. So one of the most interesting things out right now has been um, basically playing around with creating an avatar of the identity you want to inhabit in your head and then once you have that avatar created, and basically this is an advanced visualization, you step into that avatar of yourself and conduct a day or a business meeting or what is that person doing? And then you go and do it. And you're creating a memory timeline in your head of you as this, you know, boss, whatever it is, person doing what it is you'd rather be doing making the kind of deals you'd rather be making all of that kind of stuff. And you slowly start to shift the identity that you have inside 
because as we've gone over, the mind cannot tolerate a difference between reality and what it expects to find. If it doesn't find what it expects to find in reality, it will create it out of thin air. So if you're creating a new avatar of yourself that this that's this awesome, confident, you know, successful, powerful person, and you step into that uh, rea uh, avatar inside your head, and you start creating memories as this person, basically, you're, every time you're visualizing, you're creating a new memory of you as whatever it was in your head. Eventually, those two will merge, and you will you'll become that person doing those deals and whatnot. So, if you're feeling up to it, that's a fantastic um, exercise that you can do on your own. And I know we've gotten a little long, but I want to finish this off so we can ch start chapter 10 tomorrow. So maybe we'll, we'll go a little long today. So we'll go, we'll continue. So, oh, hang on. All right. Arnreich's readers who trust her as a straight-shooting social critic, are being misled about the history and varied approaches of positive thinking. But these readers do not, and likely never will, realize that they are being misled. This is because, because self-help and positive thinking literature is perhaps the one form of writing whose detractors feel no obligation to read or test drive before promulgating an opinion. Recall the journalist in chapter 1 who traveled around the world to visit the Maharishi, but never attempted transcendental meditation. There is a word for this type of thinking. Cynicism. It is the same type of predetermined thought that Arunreich perceives is positive thinking. There is an important critical discussion to be had about the problems and possibilities of this hugely popular American philosophy. Arunreich could have begun that discussion with the note on which she opened her book, recalling the nightmarish conformity of being encouraged to think positively following a cancer diagnosis. I have recounted similarly appalling episodes. But Arunreich seems to have decided after thought not to leave the door... Excuse me. Arunreich seems to have decided a forethought not to leave the door open, not even by a crack, for the possibility that there is more to this philosophy than a smiley face holding a mallet. That is a disservice to the career of valuable social critic of me, to the career of a valuable social critic and the readers who believe in her. The year that Indiana socialist and new thought pioneer Wallace D. Waddles died, 1911, also saw the publish, publication of his final book, The Science of Being Great. In it, Waddles paid tribute to American socialist icon Eugene V. Debs. You'll recall that daughter Florence Waddles corresponded with Debs' brother. Debs was, before Norman Thomas and Bernie Sanders, the most famous socialist ever to run for president. Waddles wrote of him, Mr. Debs reverences humanity. No appeal for help is ever made to him in vain. No one receives from him an unkind or censorious word. You cannot come into his presence without being made sensible of his deep and kindly personal interest in you. Every person, be he millionaire, grimy working man, or toil-worn woman, receives the radiant warmth of brotherly affection that is sincere and true. No ragged child speaks to him on the street without receiving instant and tender recognition. Debs loves men. This has made him the leading figure in a great movement, the beloved hero of a million hearts, and will give him a deathless name. If the fortunes of the American left as a cohesive and ongoing movement in our national life are to be sustained, this kind of ideal requires emulation. I would agree with that, but I don't think that's currently where we're at in culture and politics. The failure of the mainstream intelligent <laughs> intelligentsia. Intel 
failure of much of mainstream intelligence. Yeah, we'll go with that. Intelligentsia is to to me to understand what the interior of the nation was thinking about in the 2010. I'm gonna go back. Hold on a second. Okay, I screwed that up. My apologies. So let me try that one again. <clears throat> the failure of much of the mainstream intelligentsia to understand what the interior of the nation was thinking about in the 2016 presidential election can be seen in capsule form in its dismissal of positive thinking philosophy as championed by Arnreich. Positive thinking is not the enemy of progress, nor is it the sole solution to retrograde problems. Rather, positive mind philosophy, which remains hugely popular, is a misunderstood and deeply felt aspect of the American psyche, which no one who hopes to reach the heart of our nation can afford to disparage or ignore. And that's the crux of it right there. Alright, if we were still interacting with each other, like I said, I'm really disgusted with politics as a whole because it has become so bitterly and partisanly divided. Alright, I have, I have stuff, I have views that would probably land me on the, on the Democrat side. I have views that would probably land me on the Republican side. I've always been right down the middle. Always. I didn't really find either one really worth throwing my hat in the ring and saying, yeah, you guys are the ticket. Absolutely. No. I would... Actually, I'm going to take that back. I encourage people, everyone, everyone everywhere, to do their own research, to critically think, and to come up with their own observations, their own solutions, their own... How do we attack the problem? How do we find solutions? How do we come at this? We cannot, cannot progress if everyone is thinking the same thing. To include disagreements from the mild to the vehement. Okay? And I like going back to, and you might find this silly, I like going back to a movie that I saw in theaters, it's one of the few times I ever saw my dad cry. Um, and we went and watched the movie Armageddon. Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, um, Bear, that was the really cute, I forget what his name was. Um, he died a little while, uh, a couple years ago. Basically, uh, there was a huge asteroid headed to Earth. They couldn't shoot rockets at it because it was so dense they would just, you know, explode in air. It really wouldn't do anything. So their brilliant idea to think outside the box was to go get a bunch of miners, drill on the asteroid, drop a nuke down, and blow it up from the inside. Okay, cool. That sounds like a, fa you know, fairly dangerous, but that sounds like it has a chance of winning more than not. Okay, cool. But it is the, as they're going into space and the president is giving an address saying, hey, this is what we're doing, he makes one beautiful point. And that is this, every single bit of information, every single thing we know is being brought to bear against this oncoming tragedy. To include the wars we have fought, now provide the means by which we might save ourselves. even the wars we fought. You need to really understand the depth of what that says. Never mind that it was for a movie. That line right there, with of course the whole rest of the movie as context, provides the best explanation that I've ever come across to try and explain to people why we need differences of thought. Even when they're so on opposite sides, it just results in a screaming match. We have to have differences of thought. I don't want you to think like me. I want you to think like you. I demand you think like you. Don't you dare just 
tell me what I want to hear because you think that's what I want to hear. I want to hear what you think. I want to hear what you know. I want to know what your perspectives are. I want to know what you went through. How did you come to this place? What are the things teaching you? Can I help you get to a better place? Fantastic! If not, also fantastic! We're not here to just say the things that we think everybody wants to hear. You don't progress under those conditions. You stagnate. So insofar as I, I'm really, hmm, insofar as I don't necessarily agree with Mr. Horowitz's personal political affiliations, I completely respect his right to have them. And I would completely agree with him if we could... I'm going to go back over this. No one receives from him an unkind or censorious word. Doesn't ever tell him to shut up. Doesn't ever tell him to not say that. Doesn't tell him you can't say that because it's offensive. Never a censorious word. This is Mitch talking about one of the most famous socialist before Bernie Sanders. Okay? Every person, be he millionaire, working man, woman, or ragged child, receives the radiant warmth of brotherly affection that is sincere and true. If we were still at that point in politics, it wouldn't matter what anybody was. You could be Republican, you could be Democrat, you could be Green Party, you could be Labor Party, you could be whatever the fuck you wanted to. You could be the Rastafarian Party for all I care and smoke ganja all day long. We're not going to get anywhere if we cannot emulate that right there in our interactions with each other. Because everyone has shit that they've gone through. And that shit that they have gone through has informed their perspective of how they view life, how they interact with life, and their beliefs of life. We're not going to change anybody's mind if we're not willing to come from a place of understanding of what that person has been through to the, that has instructed them to get to this point in their life that you find, them, find yourself on the opposite end of an argument with. So, like I said, you can tell I get rather incensed. So we're going to make it a short two-minute brain break today. Lots of stuff to think about. Right? Lots of stuff to think about. So, go ahead and do a little wiggle and get in a little stretch and we will do our two-minute brain break. Just for this moment, just be. Whatever aches and pains you're feeling, it's fine. Whatever sounds you're hearing, it's fine. Whatever the temperature is where you're at, it's fine. Just be. 
be just for this one. Alright, so, uh, my apologies for going a little long, I wanted to, I just really wanted to finish off, um, finish off that chapter so we could start fresh, uh, tomorrow on a new one, chapter 10, which is called Mirror Man, and it looks like we're going to, um, uh, take a deep dive into Neville Goddard, which, as Mitch has illustrated before, is one of his personal champions and heroes, um, that's his guy, so, Looks like chapter 10 is going to be perhaps more um, uplifting than the current chapter has been. But again, I would stress, it's important to know both sides of the argument. It really is. Because if you don't know both sides of the argument, you really don't know where you stand. Maybe that person has a perspective that you've never thought of before. You have to be open. You have to be open to the possibility you might be wrong. Because you'll never know otherwise if you're actually right. Okay. So, that's it for today. Lots to think about. Lots to meet, uh, mull over. Go get yourself a glass of wine and sit down and relax on him. Or maybe you want to. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for participating and being so patient. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. I really, really do. Have a fantastic rest of your evening. This is the podcast, Sassafras. Good night.